This is the Bushwick Variety Show. And I'm Alec the Third. Greetings, superheroes, neighbors, friends, citizens of the world, and conscious beings of all various types. Thank you so much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. And what is a very special 100th regular episode of the podcast, featuring Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, who are the creative team behind The Line, a COVID-19 docuplay about New York City's first responders during the pandemic, produced and available to stream through the public theater, and now extended through September 1st. As always, the links are in the show notes. Their past plays include The Exonerated, Aftermath, Liberty City, How to Be a Rock Critic, and Right Before This Pandemic, Coal Country, which was also at the public theater, the actual theater. All of their work has purpose, is generous, important, and elevates the voices of the unheard and ignored. Their current play, The Line, beautifully tells the story of the people on the front lines of this current health crisis in their own words. We are indeed in a health crisis as a world and especially as a country. We are in a moment right now where we have an opportunity to choose whether we want to start to work to fix the ailments of society and by doing so create a healthy nation or just let them fester and I don't know what. So I know what I want to do. And Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen are both multifaceted theater artists. So I was personally excited to be able to sit down, listen, and learn about how they developed their past works and how they successfully created the line with the public theater right when we needed it. And having this conversation with these two artists at this time, it felt like meeting old friends for the very first time. So friends, if you enjoy conversations about working with purpose, honoring and trusting the creative process, showing up in service, and finding and working for the important things in life, this is Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, the creators of The Line. Let's have a conversation. Welcome to Brooklyn. City of Kings, my home. Yeah, I lived in... My first, the first place I lived in when I moved to Brooklyn in 92 was on the south side of Williamsburg. It was, uh, it was uh, uh, completely deserted then. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I got attacked by a pack of wild dogs one night. <laughs> yeah, there were a pack of dogs um, right, like I lived in the McKibben artist lofts for a while and there used to be a pack of, of dogs over there as well. Interesting, wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, we're back. Yes. Okay, cool. So uh, we'll we'll expand you here. And Alec, it's really nice to meet you. I'm so glad we reached out to each other and found each other. Me too. Um, I'm excited on a number on a whole number of levels. So I think this is going to be fun. Um, one is uh, I, I found my copy of this one, uh, and I was trying to remember, but so it had to have been 12 to 15 years ago, but I did like a reading of it. And um, so I love the play. I don't know why I got cast um, as this role for this meeting, but I read Delbert. Uh-huh, right uh-huh. on. Awesome. And as you can see, um, I'm not 60 now. Like I'm closer than I was then, but I'm still young for that now. So 15 years ago, I don't know if it was my idea, um, 
but uh but yeah but i'm a big fan of of the play um i'm also a writer and actor myself which both of you are right right yeah um among other things um you know as are a lot of the new york artists that i love and but i'm specifically excited to talk to you about the line um and just kind of whatever we want to talk about today. Cool. Awesome. Well, we're here for you. We're here. We're here to nice. do this. So I guess the first question um, is, and it's one that I've been forgetting to ask in this Zoom time. Where are you guys uh, calling from right now? We're currently we're upstate in the Hudson Valley. My folks have a house up here that we have been crashing at for a couple of months. Um, we wrote the line from up here. Uh, but we were in Brooklyn for the first two months. We were in Brooklyn for March and April. Yeah, we did our 60 days in quarantine. And, and I'm, then, a, I'm a very paranoid person. So I really <laughs> like when they said lockdown, I really locked down. I only I only left my building to do the laundry in the basement. And yeah. walk the dog. And we walk did the walk dog. the dog. Yeah. But, but then, yeah, after a couple of months, we were like, okay, let's go upstate for... Ten, 10 days let's just get out of here and then we got up here and we were like what are we even thinking like we're gonna stay up here for as long as they're gonna let us stay up here until we have to go back for work mm -hmm. so i think you know in some ways we were feeling really disconnected from the city when we wrote it um and and did the interviews and it was a it was really good to it was good to it was good to write a love letter it was good to have enough perspective away from the city to write a love letter to it yeah that's actually the first thing that I got off of it was kind of, oh yeah, this is very much a New York piece. Um, what, so, I mean, obviously I know what inspired it, but yeah, what kind of inspired you to, to start writing the play? How did that process start? Um, yeah, well, it started 20 years ago. Well, you I mean, sure if you, if you want to go way back. Why don't you walk in, like maybe people don't know who we are. Maybe you should tell people sure. what we do. I mean, if that's useful, we, yeah. we, um, we're both actors, writers, and directors, and we write, one of the things that we write is documentary theater, which we started doing a very long time ago um, now, which is crazy. We um, met in 2000. And when I had just moved to New York and a month after we started dating, we got the idea to write a documentary play based on interviews with death row exonerees across the country. And so we like seat of our pants, you know, a theater gave us rehearsal space and a thousand dollars kind of thing. And we scraped together what we could from everywhere and seat of our pants rented a car and drove around the country slept and spent, in it you know slept in the car spent the summer invite interviewing death row exonerees had our entire life lives changed by all of them and over the course of the next few years turned that into the play the exonerated and you know when when i i mean eric had been in the city working as an actor for 10 years when we met i had just moved to the city to go to acting school after college and so it was kind of, and I'd always written, but it, this was back in the like, you know, tail end of the 20th century when you had to like be a thing and you had to like pick one thing and you weren't serious if you weren't picking one thing. So I was like, well, I'll pick acting because I can always just write and I don't have to have a writing career or whatever. But by the end of Exonerated, I was like, oh, 
okay, well, I'm married. I have a writing partner. I guess I'm a writer too. <laughs> like, well, I just want to brag. I just want to brag on my wife for a second um, because you know we're married and we work together. Um, but you know, she was a slam poet when I first met her, so we mm. were part of that scene. With, um, I mean, everybody's famous now. It's Stacey Ann Chen. Who else? Um, well, I used to slam with Stacey Ann and with Roger Bonaire Agard. I can't believe you're outing me as a former I am. slam. <laughs> um, a lot of really amazing people. Yeah. It was like the tail end of the like late '90s great heyday, you know, Deaf Poetry Jam. Like Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway was like I hung out with a bunch of those folks. It was like that moment when we were making Exonerated. But actually, it was interesting. Like I, I did write poetry, and then we went and did the interviews for Exonerated and I came back from those interviews and I was like, I can't write poetry anymore. Like slam poetry is in sort of an inherently autobiographical form. I had spent these months immersed in these stories that were so much more compelling to me than my own story could ever be. And I was like, I can't write about my neurosis about living in New York City or like whatever it is I'm, you know what I mean? Like I need to learn how to serve these stories because people need to hear them. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started making documentary theater and we've been doing it for years. In 2008, we traveled to Jordan to interview Iraqi civilian refugees for a play called Aftermath that was at New York Theater Workshop in 2009. Um, and then we took a couple of years away from documentary theater. We were acting and writing for television and, and had we, a kid. We, we and, wrote a play about the rock critic Lester Bangs. Yes. You might know if you've ever watched Almost Famous, Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman played him, played him in mm -hmm. Famous. Um, and we that was sort of documentary theater. We basically took all however many thousands of pages of material we had and, and turned it into kind of an interview with Lester. Um, and did a, a Jess directed me in a one man play of it. And that's, that's kind of how we hooked up with the public theater. That was the first thing we had produced by now. Right. And then in, we actually got the idea for our play coal country in 2010 when the upper big branch mine explosion happened in West Virginia, but we had a baby and we were working on rock critic and doing a bunch of other stuff. And so we just sort of sat with the idea for a while and then a couple of a few years later we wound up bringing it I don't know probably 2015 we wound up bringing that idea to the public um, and they commissioned it and we start embarked on the process of writing that play um, and so coal country which is about the upper big branch mine disaster in West Virginia and had original music it, by Steve Earle 29 um, men were killed in a yes. mine explosion sort of due to capitalism run wild down yes. there uh, you know it's sort of a, the one guy owns everything uh, model kind of is is at, is at work down there and mm -hmm. so uh, it's at work everywhere now but so that yeah. was that was running at the public where I'm getting us up to the present right. moment um, that was running at the public. It, we opened March 3rd of this year. So, oh, when, wow, of this year. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, we were really immersed in that play and working really closely with the public theater when the theaters shut down. Um, it had opened on the 3rd. We had just gotten all of the reviews. It was like, you know, uh, like launching, it right? Was selling out. It was um, great. And then all of the theaters closed and are on March 12th. And so 
in that moment, because we had a show open there, we were still talking to the public every couple of days and trying to figure out what was happening and everybody was trying to figure out what was happening. And also around that time, like a few weeks in, the 24-hour plays called us. They were doing, they've done since um, the pandemic started, they've done these series of viral monologues, online monologues. They've, they're now on like round 16 or something. It's amazing. Wow. And they called us and they asked us to write one. And we said, you know, can we do our documentary thing with it? And they were like, sure. And so we interviewed, this would have been in late March. We interviewed a New York City nurse um, about COVID and about what was happening then. The monologue's still up online. It's The monologue's called Invincible. Yes. And it is, it was, the interview was really intense. And um, I mean, she was really brave and really scared. And it was like right in the middle of everything. They didn't have enough PPE. It was like building up to the peak, right? And um, it was scary and hard and also an, an incredible relief to feel like we were doing our job in that moment in whatever way we could. Um, and we were like, there are, and, and just even in finding her and searching for a subject to interview, I reached out and found a lot of nurses, right? And, and, and we were like, you know, there's actually a larger story here to tell. And so because we were talking to the public almost every day, we just brought the idea right to them. We pitched it. We were like, look, what if we did some kind of rapid response online documentary play about what's happening right now? And at that moment, they still, like everybody, they were still just trying to figure out what was even happening. Um, and so it took a few weeks, but then they circled back to us and they were like, hey, that idea, like, let's go, let's do it. Yeah. And so we started interviewing people in like mid-May. Mm -hmm. We talked to almost 20 New York City medical first responders, doctors, nurses, EMTs, paramedics, respiratory therapists, um, over Zoom, uh, who's really intense. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it was the, 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 on a variety of levels, you know, living in this, in, in, and again, it depends on your, on, your, on your background and predilections, but living in this country for the past three and a half years uh, has been particularly has been uh, uh, for me uh, 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 a giant trigger. Uh, 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 there's a lot of um, uh, pain and um, uh, difficulty and uh, anger that has been building up and stuff like that. And I really felt the need as an artist that that anger in me does not sit well. And I really felt the need to punch back. And both with coal country and and ultimately with the line, it does sort of feel like a one-two punch against uh, against some of the things that have been ailing us. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and I, I salute you both um, for like twofold. One, I think like as artists, it's really important if you have the energy. I, I think it's I always say this like it's it's also important for people if they are just kind of feeling down. Um, that that's okay too, that there's no pressure to create. Mm -hmm. um, however, I believe in during this time, I've had a lot of reflection. I really um, have deepened the belief in the power of art for change. 
um, and that as artists, if we do have the strength, um, using our artistic voice is the best form of protest that we can do because it's kind of how we how we use our voice anyway. So thank you for for doing that, for encouraging other artists to do it. Um, you know, you made a play during this time about this time, like really cool. Thank you. I mean, it was really it 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 felt like an incredible, incredibly humbling and amazing to get to do it. I mean, I think for on so many levels and for so many reasons. I mean most of our friends in the theater are unemployed right now mm -hmm. and will be through early 2021. And so even to just get to make work right now that's still in the theater, even though we're not in the same room, is extraordinary. And to get to be supported in that by a theater was really extraordinary. Also, though, you know, usually making a play, making one of these plays especially, it takes years, right? Mm -hmm. So we're always doing political work with our writing, we're always making theater that wants to speak to the times we're in and make change. But, you know, the nature of theater or theater as it has been is that it's slow, right? And there's a lag and that can be frustrating, right? And so in this moment, because we put the play up digitally and we figured out how to do the whole thing online, we were able to move so much faster. And so to be able to respond like more like a journalist to like what's actually happening in the moment with our work was a tremendous gift and something we've never been able to do before. Mm -hmm. And so Coal Country set opened March 3rd. Yep. Yeah, we had to only, to, the, including previews, there were only 26 performances of it, um, you know, uh, uh, fortunately uh, the families uh, who are portrayed in the play, uh, you know, the upper big branch mine disaster killed these 29 men. But, you know, what I've learned from um, from the news media is that often these disasters are presented in numbers. And right now the numbers that are being thrown around is, you know, 23,000 of my neighbors died in New York. Um, you know, but for the people across the country, that 23,000 doesn't mean anything. Uh, 140,000 people in the country, those numbers are really hard to kind of take in. And, you know, we're always looking at putting a face behind a number. And, uh, you know, the math, the math is a signal that something is awry, something is wrong. And, you know, that was true with the exonerated too, you know, the number of, 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 of people of color who are incarcerated in this country is not commensurate with the, uh, the 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 actual population. You know, I don't know what the recent numbers were, but I think 17% of the population in the United States is African American, but they comprise almost 50% of the death row population. Or at least they did then. At least they did then. And I haven't checked up on the numbers recently, but that number is a signal flag to me as a citizen. Oh, there's problem. something, there's a problem here. Right. And just like Delbert Tibbs said in The Exonerated, you know, if something's wrong with your car, you don't run around saying what's right with my car, what's wrong <laughs> with what you want to deal with, and what's wrong with this country is what we need to look at. It's the only way we're going to evolve and grow and be better. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, George Floyd happening in this moment where everybody was quarantined and kind of in a state of reflection, really interesting tipping point and yeah really an uncovering of a lot of things a lot of issues that like you two were working on before 
like, and a lot of artists were kind of working on, but that collectively, even a lot of us artists didn't always want to look at and acknowledge. And then, yeah, being in this moment of reflection, not being able to turn away anymore, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic for the future, but I also feel great responsibility to be active um, in the future. How are you two feeling now and kind of what are you thinking about? Let, let, me, specific, let me specifically address what happened, the, the, the execution, the public execution of George Floyd mm-hmm. by that man. I won't even say his name. Um, my grandfather was a county judge. Uh, my great-grandfather was a county judge in Minnesota, and my grandfather was a cop. He was a highway patrolman. And I was taught from an early age that the system worked a different way, that, that the system was fair and um, all of that stuff. I, I, I really <laughs> believed what I was taught in history class, you know, instead of, like, you know, reading my Howards in like I should have. I was, I was, I was buying, I was buying a lie. Right. And, um, so meeting Delbert Tibbs and another guy named Darby Tillis, uh, Tills, Tills, Tillis, Tillis. He was another guy another we interviewed guy for we interviewed. Exonerated. That, that changed my life. And it made me, it made me realize in my twenties that the, that the system was broken. I thought it needed to be fixed. What happened to George Floyd aside from disturbing me as a human being and as a parent of a daughter, because he had a, a daughter, um, it, it, actually, it actually fucked me up in a variety of ways, but the, the, the way it really fucked me up was that I realized, no, no, the system isn't broken. It's working exactly how it's been designed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, in my in my mind now, the the system as being promoted by Donald Trump. Donald Trump created that cop, and he created the 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 you know. But I mean that that the, the system created that cop over four hundred years. Right, mm-hmm. but, and Donald Trump. But it you know it may as well have been Donald Trump committing that act. Uh, you know, I I just I my my and I felt like. I, I, and that the George Floyd moment shattered me. You know, um, I'd been talking on the radio two weeks before about how my African American friends sometimes confide in me that they don't feel safe in their bodies when they're on the street. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I was trying to grok and like trying to get my head around. But I'd been talking about it two weeks before in an interview that we did for Coal Country relating that to the plight of these coal miners who have no control over their bodies when they go into mines and, 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 and were, were blown up because of sheer greed, you know? And, and, um, and then all of a sudden it happened and the George Floyd moment really broke me and made me realize, no, the system's working as it's designed. We need to change the whole system. The system is fucked up and we need to fix it. And, and we need to create something that hasn't and, been created before. Right. And, and then doing these interviews for the line, I got broken again because I realized not only did that system exist in policing, which is so obvious now, it exists across the culture in all of these ways that are invisible to most of us. Uh-huh. So that, 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 that's, that's, I got altered. 
We know? had done the interviews for the line before George Floyd was murdered. But we, we did some follow-up yeah, well, interviews right, after. That's right. where I'm going. But we had done the bulk of the interviews before George Floyd was murdered, just before, right? We had just finished them. And already in those interviews, we were talking extensively or hearing extensively from people about the racism that's embedded in the healthcare system and the racism that was causing the disparate outcomes with COVID and how much more intensely COVID was affecting people of color and poor people in New York City um, than those of us who could come upstate to the Hudson Valley or go to the or go to the Hamptons or even just have the ability to socially distance within New York City. Or right? because some, we're not living with seven people in right. one apartment. Yeah. Right? And we don't still have to go to our job as an essential worker for the MTA or deliver seamless, right? Um he's and, gonna say something though. Yeah, sorry. Oh no, no, I was just seconding that. Like somebody I was listening to something talking about that, like people cramped in a one bedroom, how they can't even quarantine somebody if they get really sick. Right. And so already we were hearing that overwhelmingly, right, in the interviews. And then George Floyd was murdered. And we were like, okay, we can't go back and do all of the interviews again, right? But there is no way that we can write this play in this moment and not explicitly address this part of this moment because mm-hmm. by the time it's out in the world we we will have lived through th- this too right and like george floyd is connected to the moment of the onset of covid in new york right it's the, it's all connected so we went back and did follow up interviews with the, a few of the people who we, we knew by that point that their stories were going to be in the play and asked them to talk a little bit more explicitly about those connections and so the play is is very much about you know medical first responders in New York City during the peak of the covid crisis in March and April of 2020 like that is what the play is about but it is also about systemic racism because the story of the covid crisis in New York City is also a story of systemic racism it's just in the healthcare system rather than in the policing system mhm mhm um Something I'm grappling with, uh, I am just starting to write a little bit more and develop as a playwright a little bit more. And as a black playwright, so far I've kind of, like there's always, it's anything I write is gonna be a little bit informed by my experience. Um, but like I went sci-fi for the last one and then the new one's gonna be kind of in the superhero realm Um, I just want to say thank you because I feel like as black artists, a lot of times uh, we are always expected to address race and racial issues. And I do think it's important. Um, On the other hand, I know a lot of black artists that also want the freedom to be able to write about the mundane experience as well. Um, So I think it's super it's it's just important that somebody's talking about it. And sometimes like it coming from you is better than it coming from me. Cause if I talk about it, sometimes people don't listen, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, well, I mean, that it's, sucks. It's, and it yeah, does suck, but it does completely suck. sucks. But, but also I had a black friend tell me once she came into our house and she put down her bag and she said, I am sick and fucking tired of teaching white people about racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and 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 you know it's sometimes it sometimes the messenger needs to shift well in order to get the point across you know it's white people's job to fix racism because we created it <laughs> right so as far as i'm concerned it's our job to fix it and you know i mean i think and and you know we've been involved in a lot of conversations with playwrights also about how important it is for white playwrights to write about whiteness too, right? Because white, that's part of why systemic racism can be perpetuated in the way it is, is because whiteness is made invisible or whiteness is made the neutral thing, right? And like nobody talks about whiteness as part of race. So, you know, in coal country that, I feel like that's part of the work that we were doing there also, right? Um, mm. But I think, you know, the documentary medium is, I feel really blessed to, be practiced at working in the documentary medium because while I would never say that we don't have a point of view, we obviously have very strong points of view about lots of things. Our job when we're making documentary plays is to get the hell out of the way, right? Uh -huh. It's to be, it's, it's to the craft and the politics and the, the art a lot of it is in choosing the stories, right? Shifting like, the protagonist. Who, yeah, who we're asking our audiences to empathize with is that's where all the politics live, right? Uh -huh. Once that choice is made, once you're you've made the decision about who you're creating an empathic connection with, whose shoes you're asking the audience to walk in, as documentary playwrights, our job is to just like step back craft the hell out of the story, structure it well so it can do what it does and let the people who are talking have their say. It's not us having our say, it's right. them having their say. So here's a question for you because I, I love, one of the things I'm excited about this time is the innovation. So I'm seeing a number of theater companies, the public, you two, I'm seeing people create theater or whatever you want to call it for this time. Um, and as far as the documentary theater thing, where did you, did you have something that you modeled it off of before or was yeah. it also something that you, you know what I mean? How did you learn how to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I was just talking this morning. You're a great interviewer. How long <laughs> have you been doing this? A couple, couple years. Yeah. Um, off and on, but thank you. I'll take it. Nobody asked that. That's a great question. Um, I, 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 well, first of all, there's a dude named Studs Terkel who was kind of a, a man about town. He was a, a, a story collector. Uh, um, he wrote a, a book called Working. Um, he wrote something else called Division Street, I think is the oh, name. Oh, I know Division, like a play of Division Street. It, well, I think it was a, it was, it was a definitely a, a it was a book first or I'm, was it a I'm going to look first? it up. Um, but working was his working. What he did was with working. What he did was he just went and interviewed people about their jobs, and he'd do these extensive taped interviews with people, and then he transcribed them and turned them into turned them into chapters of the book. And he interviewed people. He interviewed uh, everybody: nurses, doctors, uh, uh, CEOs, uh, um, um, uh, prison guards. Um, and, you know, as a teenager, I read that book and got a window into people's lives in a way it really opened up a curiosity in me about just about individuals, you know, like what and what that experience was like to be an individual in a job doing something different than what I do. 
Um, you know, for Jessica, her big hero is Anna Devere Smith. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When you know. I was in college, I was exposed to her work. And as somebody who was like, I was always a weird hyphenate and I was always an activist and a social change person and really politically oriented and an actor and a writer. And like I said, that was like back in the days where you weren't a serious artist unless you, or a serious activist actually, unless you like picked a thing to do. And she was like the only model out there of like, oh, she's doing a thing. Like that thing that she's doing does something. Uh -huh. If I can do something in that universe, like that means it's possible, right? Yeah. And we were, and also Eric had seen Emily Mann's work There's really a, early a on. There's a play about um, uh, Harvey Milk, uh, um, uh, the the politician who was murdered in in, mm -hmm. uh, San, in San Francisco, Execution of called Execution of Justice. That that um, that. Uh, 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 some grown-ups took me to when I was a teenager. I saw it at the Guthrie in Minneapolis based on newspaper articles, interviews, stuff like that, and it, it blew my mind, you know. Um, that was working on me for a long time, though. I wasn't, like, I was a secret writer. I was, mm -hmm. a, I was, I was, I kept it to myself. I was just an actor, like, you know, and I've been really fortunate, like, you know, I got to play the baseball player Thurman Munson. I've gotten to play, you know, uh, Lester Bangs now. I'm on a new TV show on ABC called For Life with, with uh, you know, a, a class that's mostly people of color and, and a crew that's like 50-50. And mm -hmm. it's one of the best sets I've ever worked on. And, you know, it's 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 the it's a pretty political show for it's, network it's, TV. It's, a, it's great. It's a political show for network TV. And it, it, you know, so I've been very fortunate in that realm to do a lot of stuff. What did you say the name of that one was? It's called For Life. Okay. Uh, it's based on a real guy's story, uh, African-American man. Uh, who, Isaac Wright Jr. Isaac Wright Jr., who um, was wrongfully convicted and jailed and became a lawyer. Um, and, and then got out and like... Got himself it, out. Got himself out after a number of years. Was mm -hmm. it I don't know. It was a lot of years. And... and um, and then went after the guys who wrongfully convicted him and, and, and they got, they got put, they got put, put, they got sentenced. They actually got prosecuted. They actually got prosecuted. We have a, our daughter has an important Excuse question. So she's oh, yeah. Yeah. Us, but I'll, I'll keep talking. But, uh, but, but, you know, it was really meeting Jessica that, that, um, that changed my life. You know, she, 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 uh, Oh, for life, yeah. I, I I was thinking I knew what it was, and that guy was in the line. Yeah, the, yeah. One of the Nicholas guys. Pinnock, that's how we. That's Nicholas is my good buddy. We play nemeses on the show. I play the I play the 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 DA, um, and he's uh, he plays uh, uh, um, uh, Aaron Wallace, who's the lawyer, who's also in prison. All um, right, that's. I mean, it's been on my list. Now, definitely going to check it out. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, really, like you know in the late nineties, I, I had sort of plateaued as an actor. I, 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 uh, I was doing a lot of TV movies. I was doing a lot of stuff that really didn't matter to me. Um, I appreciated the work and stuff like that, but, but it was, it was, um, it was, uh, it was, it was becoming very pablumy tasting. And, um, suddenly I walked into this, this bar one night and one of my best friends was sitting with this woman and it was like a light shone down from heaven. And I said, she was beautifully lit. 
And, um, and I, I, I sat down across from Jessica and immediately we started talking and immediately we had a vibe so much so that when she got up to go to the bathroom, my friend was like, dude, you need to step off. And I was like, <laughs> he's like, I'm on a date with this girl. I'm trying to impress her. You've got this energy. And I was like, all right. But I managed to give her my number before she left because I was doing a play. To get quote unquote free tickets to his right. play. And, and like, I know, I know that move. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, I'd never done the move before, but my, I, and I couldn't feel my friend glaring because I was too taken with Jessica, but uh, he ended up DJing our wedding. So it was all cool. But, yeah. But uh, as, as you do, you know, but like really meeting Jessica opened me up to the possibility that maybe I had a voice and maybe I had something to say and, um, and, you know, and it's just, it's been, it's just been a growing learning experience with her over time that, that's expanded that, you know, so I'm really grateful to her, you know, so I'm lucky. I got lucky. I married up. Me, me too, actually. Yeah. Ah, congratulations. It's nice, Thank right? You. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so speaking of that, I know I saw on Jessica, I saw on your website um, that you're also teaching creators now too. Yes, indeed. Um, I do a lot of teaching and coaching. Um, I, in a, a few different modes, I um, teach in the uh, MFA drama program at Juilliard. I teach mm -hmm. a class called Story, um, where I'm teaching the actors there how to create their own work. And teach. I teach story structure is the essence of what I do, right? So whether I'm teaching at Juilliard or sometimes I teach TV writing at the NYU Film School, um, or I'm coaching private clients, or I'm working with change organizations, which I'll talk about in a second, what I teach is story structure. I'm, I'm a nerd about the neuroscience of story structure and our response to story. Story is, and neuro neuroscience now actually understands because of MRI technology, how story works on the brain. And it is actually a technology for creating empathy, which to me is extraordinary because I think you can track most of the problems that we have as humans to a, an empathy deficit, mm -hmm. right? And the fact that we um, only empathize with people who we think are like us, right? And we other people. And, and the fact that there is actually a mechanism that we can use to, to work through that and where our brains are actually automatically will empathize with people who we think are different than us if it's done well is magical to me right so and i write in lots of different forms we write for television we write documentary theater we write films right so and i so i coach private clients in all those different mediums right working with the underlying structure um of story which i think applies across all of those mediums and then i also do um, consulting and training for uh, social change and advocacy and nonprofit organizations. So I um, teaching them what we know as artists, right, about how story works, right. So I work a lot of times with like progressive organizations, communications departments, right, because a lot of the training there and the language there is from more from like marketing and advertising. And stuff like that so there's very there's great communications work but story the way we understand it in the arts is like a whole other animal mm -hmm. and if you know how to tap into that even at a basic structural level you can impact people emotionally in these really powerful ways and i think the left has got to get a lot better at that so i try to Ooh, yes. 
in there as much as I can to help organizations who are doing good work learn to do it better. What kind of playwriting are you doing? Like, what are you working on? Uh, so I'm a, I mean, I'm a multi-hyphenate also. Um, so I'm, I'm also like a songwriter. I'm not writing a musical. Maybe, maybe I'll, I think there's a world where I will incorporate the music into the play at some point. Um, but I started off similar with writing, you know, poetry that turned into songs. Um, and then back in the day, like I wrote, I had locks up until, like I cut my locks of 12 years during the quarantine. Um, but before, the first time I had locks, I wrote a one man play about Bob Marley. Um, oh. And then I wrote another one that was more semi-autobiographical, but kind of Jekyll and Hyde. Um, that was fun. So I was first kind of writing things for myself. And then uh, there's a long story of like focusing on music for a while and then coming back to like theater a couple of years ago. And basically I'm part of a theater company called The Shelter, which is very much about developing, it's kind of more about developing work. Um, so it's very actor writer heavy. So mm -hmm. a lot of actors come in there and end up becoming writers also because you see the process week after week. Um, so with them for the first time, I've been writing more, not necessarily for myself. And I enjoy that. Um, so the play that I wrote at the beginning of COVID is kind of about the multiverse and about what happens if you were to go to another parallel universe where everything was actually almost exactly the same, but maybe your life was 1% better, wow. but it wasn't your life. So, so that one's kind of fun. Um, and then, like I said, the next one's going to be about superheroes and the basic idea is uh, Captain Planet, um, the Planeteers 20 years later. Um, wow. That's like the premise. And I have like the characters, but I'm like literally at the very beginning. Um, Captain Planet. I'm a big comic book nerd, so I, I wrote a graphic novel a couple years ago that got published, which was pretty exciting. But but uh, but I'm 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 big Jack Kirby fan, big mm -hmm. big Steve Ditko fan. Um, there's a guy named Tom King who's really interesting right now. Uh, uh, there's a couple other people that I follow that are newer artists that I really like too. But like I'm a classic comic book guy from the '70s, so yeah. Nice. Yeah. So one one of my new missions or initiatives if you will is uh that i want to teach people how to be superheroes um i believe everybody has a superpower um you just have to find your purpose and then be brave brave enough to take the risks and like follow it um and then i think collectively you know we can affect change on a massive level if more people would tap into their purpose and similar to what you were talking about not just chase money you know, um, and yeah, and I really believe that. Um, so the other thing I'm kind of working on is I'm, I've been writing a lot of songs during this time and those have all been pretty political. Um, so I'm, I kind of want to develop a one person show, I think. Make, I, I'm thinking about calling it like the COVID Chronicles or something. Mm -hmm. um, and that one will be more like personal and more part one person show, part song, part motivational speaking and storytelling. I don't know. Um, yeah. Right on. Yeah. So. No, I mean, it's like, you know, it, it is, it is, uh, yeah, I hit a point, I hit a point with 
the I did the one man thing and I was like, okay, I've done that. <laughs> um, I got it for another one that I, but it, you know, like you, like, you know, as a performer, it's different to be in a piece with other people. Yeah. As opposed to carrying the, the weight of the energy all yourself, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really terrifying position that one puts themselves in when they decide to do a one person play. It takes it. It's not an, it's not an act of ego. It's a complete act of bravery. I never need to do a solo show in my life. I'm very happy. I've directed two of them. I'm very happy to direct them. They're fun to direct, but I never need to do that as an actor. I am happy only working with other people as an actor. But you know, that's the other thing, you know, like, you know, the, the, the being of service to other people is a big, part of what I do you know my my grandmother uh on my mom's side of the family raised me to have certain values and and being of service was a church thing for her but it was Mm -hmm. always part of her the way that she moved quietly through the world and you know the one good thing um you know the the that I've that I've never done um, and, 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 and never having done this, I hope I've, I've hoped I've made some small contribution to the world is I've never, I've never chased money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, money, money. I'm sorry. I think our dog needs to go outside. I have, I have two dogs over here too. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's, he's 14. He's very old. Um, but you know, I've never chased money and it's really served me because, because the money has always found me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, you know, I've, I've chased relationships and I've chased friendships and I've always found that I've been served better by that than, Mm -hmm. than chasing, uh, the golden calf as twere. So, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. there's also a school of thought. Um, are you familiar with, uh, Simon Sinek? No. Uh, so he wrote a book called start with why, and it's like, if you, at most businesses and most like what people are taught in business school a lot of times is figure out the how, like you're selling the how, like you're, you're, you basically, I'm, I'm, I can't remember how to articulate this exactly, but basically instead of starting with how you start with why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you start with how, why you can figure out the how. And, and then basically like the other thing about it is, if you do purpose-driven work and if you show up in service and not just going for like what you can get out of something, a lot of times the secret is you'll a lot of times actually be a lot more successful by doing things that way. So yeah. it's also like, if you want to be selfish, be really generous. Like, <laughs> and it's actually a good, much better healthier business model, you know? <laughs> well, as a, as a, as a hardcore 20 year Buddhist, I will, I will attest to that. The, the, the taking care of one's own zone of authority is, and, and, and stuff is, it, you know, making one's own bed is always uh, preps you to help other people. So uh, that's true on an emotional level and a work level and a physical level. It's like right livelihood too, you know, like mm-hmm. we always, we always, um, in our plays, we always try to do some giving back. Uh, in the in the case of uh, the coal miners play, we uh, raise money for an organization that uh, uh, helped coal miners. Uh, you know, they're all losing their benefits down there now, um, and uh, there aren't any other jobs down there, so it's not their fault they're working in a carbon economy. But they all have black lung, 
and, um, and they're losing their benefits because the coal companies are shutting down and going away and just taking the benefits with them. Um, so there's an organization dedicated to helping with that, with Aftermath. Let me name check it. Oh. It's good to do it, right? right yeah, yeah. Appalachian Law Center is the organization that lawyers that do <clears throat> pro bono legal work for coal miners to help them get their lung benefits. And yeah, Aftermath, with, we worked with, with the Aftermath, we worked with the International Rescue Committee and raised a bunch of money for them. With um, Exonerated, we were able to do straight help to the people. So we've raised almost uh, well, uh, quite a bit of money. Uh, the, the exonerees with the streams of income that we set up actually ended up making more money individually on the play than we did, which was so satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that play ran for two years. It was a source of income for a lot of people for a long time, you know, and, you know, the way that people get treated in the movie, movie business when their life stories get bought is, is, is deplorable. Mm -hmm. And um, we wanted to change that model. We saw a different model. And then with the public theater, there were two medical organizations that we partnered with that are dedicated to helping my city. And, yeah. and, you know, especially people of color in my city, which is, which is important. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be one thing, you know, it doesn't have to be of benefit to me. Story is for everybody and, and the, the, the profit models can benefit everybody too. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be about the, this whole story about, you know, going through the world and, and the world of hard knocks and then one day you're successful and all of a sudden you're showered with money is, is something is that's destructive. It's sold to us as, as, uh, as a, a good way of being and it's not necessary. Well, and it's part of the, you know, sort of American individualist myth, which I think we're seeing the collapse of in real time, right? Like we're getting a big lesson in real time of like, Mm, actually, we're only going to survive if we take care of each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, actually, we have to take care of each other in order to survive individually. Yeah. And it's time for us to learn that. Yeah. Like, my wife's from Amsterdam, um, and it's different. Like, not that they don't have problems, but one thing they don't really have over there is a homeless problem. Mm -hmm. And by homeless problem, I mean... I don't have anything against homeless people. I just want to live in a world where people don't have to be homeless. Right. I think right. that that's a better world to live in, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you completely. As a side note, uh, having, I assume you've been to Amsterdam. Oh, yes. Have you ever been to Lambique, the comic book store? No. Oh, it's the best comic book store in the world. Uh, All right. I hope it's still there. I hope after all of this, it's been around for a really it's been around long for time. a really long time. The original owner is dead, but it's I can't remember what district it's, it's in. But I'll I'll send you the information on it. It's a great comic book store. Well, you know, probably um, considering how their like social structure is built, probably it'll still be around. Like probably uh -huh. it, just because they have social protection there, you know. There's a there's a black owned business here called Mega Brain Comics that I'm going to make a shout out to. Um, uh, that that is uh, in Rhinebeck, in New Rhinebeck, York. New York, and uh, again one of my favorite comic book stores in the world, second only to maybe Forbidden Planet. Uh, the guy's got just 
pristine taste in in comics and um and is a, a big giver back to the community you know he run i think he runs dungeons and dragons games out of there and and not you know not only sells comic books but there's other cool stuff in the shop he's got like old school video games in there so there's pac-man and miss pac-man too i can take my daughter you know he's just a great guy and he's running online business right now too yeah so, yeah, yeah. So we've gotten on a comic book nerd tangent so everybody who's All listening the to the show google mega brain comics Nice. Um, yeah, but but you know it it you know where wherever I go, I I've I've I you know and I encounter a lot of people now who encountered our stories and stuff like that. But I, I consider each of our interviewees to be a teacher of mine. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, in in this doing this interview, you're a teacher for me. Um, you know, I I I find I find uh, I find. I find the, I find the even though I've been talking a lot, I find the act of listening to be a holy act, and and you know, and it's it's something that, you know, I think right now people are forcing themselves to be heard, because mm-hmm. because we've had enough, haven't we? Mm-hmm. That um, as an actor actually is one of the reasons why I wanted to start the podcast. Like one to like elevate voices and build community, but also like personally as a person as an and as an actor i think practicing listening um like just will help me grow so much um so it's been an honor to be able to do this and the two of you i thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today um yeah my journey like it's been like basically a 20-year journey kind of full circle and right now i feel like i'm refinding purpose and kind of some things feel like they're kind of coming together and I'm kind of embracing that multi-hyphenate thing too. So thank you for pursuing that and showing that that's possible to me. Um, it's really fun that I was able to, to read this play, The Exonerated, um, do a reading of it. What was it, like, what was it like for you playing Delbert Tibbs? Like, I know we're, I guess, are we wrapping up? I don't yeah, want to wrap up. I want to talk forever. But, but what was it, what was it like for you? Did you find, what, how did, like, cause Delbert's gone now and I, I want to know, mm. I only get to talk about him with people who've played him. What was it like being his voice? Yeah, it's been a long time. And I, I pulled this from my bookshelf, like right before we hopped on. So I didn't get a chance to revisit it. Um, I did feel a connection with him. Uh, so it is something that I think would be interesting like 20 years from now to, to see about, um, you know, maybe we'll see 10 years, you know, we'll see. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think it's like uh, one of those, I got the sense of like a deep well of a person. And I think anybody can tap into like that deepness. And as an actor, we get to do that. We get to tap into the humanity of people. Mm. I think as a 25 or 26 year old, however I was, um, trying to tap into a 60 year old man who, you know, spent a lot of time and then got exonerated off of death row. Like, there were things that I didn't have at the time, but to be able to try to tap into that and to connect to that. And then maybe, who knows, like maybe that journey for me was kind of, you know, 
something inside my heart, like as a compass, like not to waste your time. So, mm. you know, I'm coming up on going to be 39 in a month. Like, and there've been times where I feel like I've wasted a lot of time, but stories like that of like remembering, I still have 20 years that this guy didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and I'm free right now. Like I'm good right now. So it's like, anytime I beat myself up for, for anything really like, and I try to say that to people also, it's like, we have to hold ourselves accountable, but when we waste time and regret, yeah, like we waste time and you can do that for a long time. Like there's so much to be thankful for. Um, and yeah, like hearing those stories, just somebody has it worse than you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And these are people. We need to stop dehumanizing people. Like that's the whole, I think the crux of the sickness of our like entire system and our, and our country right now is like devaluing people. Did you hear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's speech on the, on the uh, house floor today? No. It's all about that. There was a, can I swear on your show? Yep. Already have. This, I. Is, a, this is a theater show. So. <laughs> okay, no. right on, right on. Uh, I think I did already. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, uh, I'm quoting something. I wouldn't, these words wouldn't come out of my mouth um, um, unless I was playing a character who said them, but there was a congressman who called her a, 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 um, a quote unquote fucking bitch. Um, on, mm. the, on the steps of the Congress in front of a bunch of reporters. And it was reported as such. And this, this congressman, uh, you know, white cis male, got up and, and did his non-apology apology. And we all know how that works, right? You know, I will never, I will, is something to the effect of, I won't, you know, I won't say I'm sorry for my passion or whatever. Oh, I mean, and what he was, but she has a whole like nine minute speech from the floor of the house. It's one of the best speeches I've ever heard delivered from the floor of the house. It's going to go down in history. And it's about women and it's about that word. And it's about, it's a, you know, it's about, um, and it's about um, men who use that word hiding behind the shield of wives and daughters. um, When in fact, they, um, they are perpetuating the thing that allows men to call their own wives and daughters that and never really apologizing for it. It's a really, it's a really beautifully structured speech as a, as a writer, I highly recommend it because she really, she really cuts to the bone with it and gets mm. something and gets to something that's undeniable. Like it doesn't matter what your color is, what your religion is, where you come from, what your race is, or whether you're a man or a woman, it, it connects everybody in all ways to the experience that she had and to what he is. Uh-huh. And without disparaging him, she approached the end of the speech with a kind of gratitude for him uh, uh, for, for showing the world that this still exists was, mm-hmm. was kind of her, her piece of gratitude, which I found incredible, <laughs> but it really, ass. but it's about that. It's about, you know, we live in a culture right now where, where, where dehumanizing is, is, is a practice and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and we have to change that. And that's why I think amplifying the voices in the line was, was the biggest privilege for me, you know? Um, I, I have a lot of privilege, but but amplifying the voices of other people is my greatest privilege, and I just I need to lean into that, and uh, and hope that uh, and hope that the uh, the uh, 
the uh, the 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 uh, rest of the world uh, can uh, can uh, catch up in some way through the stories of other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, where's the the best place for people to follow you two and yeah, just keep up with what you're up to? Um, we're both on Instagram. I'm on Twitter too much. <laughs> um, I'm Jessica C. Blank on Instagram and he's E. Jensen123 on Instagram. Um, I also have a website, jessicacblank.com, and I have a mailing list if folks are interested in the either the social change story structure stuff or coaching, writing coaching, et cetera, et cetera. We'd love um, to talk to your theater company sometime too. Yeah. You know, yeah. about developing work. Like we're open and available. Like somebody needs to do the George Floyd story. That's not my story, but there's there's a, a documentary based something about George Floyd and, and we'd be happy to help any young writer who wants to come along and pick our brains. We're, we're open and available at all times for anybody. Definitely, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I'll definitely, you know, connect you. Uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about today? Because yeah, there's definitely. no... There's no time limit as far as like I'm having a good time. So yeah, we are too. Um, well, the the line uh, is still up and available on YouTube on the Public Theater's YouTube website. Maybe you can link to it. But mm -hmm. it, it just got quote unquote extended. Right. Yeah. Uh, for another four weeks, so it's going to be up through September first, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's 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 really good. And um, you know, and the other thing that I want to say is, you know, for people in other parts of the country who might be listening to that, uh, to lis listening to this, I do hope they tune in and watch the line. You know, the country's going through a lot of uh, difficulty right now, and. You know, if, if you're looking for an excuse to wear a mask or if you're confused and looking for a different perspective, watching something like The Line is, is, can, can be a, a, a sort of wake-up call. One reviewer uh, uh, referred to it as a come-to-Jesus kind of play for people mm -hmm. who may be on the fence about their own safety and the about safety. whether this is real. And whether this is real and the safety of others. And, you know, it only takes an hour um, it's open-hearted. The characters in it are super approachable, and it's and we if we've done our job right, it's not preachy. Um, it's it's just it's just the real stories, and I, I think I think that for people who live in parts of Texas and Florida and who are trying to get a handle on it and aren't getting the real story from from the news right now or are getting multiplicity of stories, that it's a good avenue into into the real experience of, of, of frontline medical workers and mm -hmm. they sacrifice. And that's the other thing that like, the thing that I love about America and, and, and there are a lot of things to love is our diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, this thing I love about New York City, you know, that's, I think that's why the play was so representative, you know, is because we, we hit all the boroughs, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I, I think there's something here about how there's strength in that. And, and it's also about the people who risk their lives to care for us every day. And, and so sacrifice, risking our lives for each other, uh, putting it on the line for each other is not something that's coming from the executive branch in DC. It's, right. it's gotta come from the people. And, um, and, that's, and so there's something hopeful in there for people too, even though it's a hard listen. Uh -huh. so, um, that's so. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna sell anything, I'm I want to sell. Uh, you know, it's for free. It's on YouTube. It's easy to watch, and and we hope people will tune into it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I I am not looking forward. I have to fly out on Saturday to help my mom with my stepdad. Um, and I'm not looking forward to having to travel during this time. Um, it's a little bit you concerning. Have you have to take a plane? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, <laughs> it's, yeah, one medical thing for another. So I just hope, hope I don't accidentally infect either of them um i'll be wearing a mask you know (laughs) like at least like it's like the least that we can do that's the thing i don't understand like i know it's a little bit inconvenient to have to wear a mask but it's like the it's not that big of a deal and in new york people are pretty good about it and i'm glad that we mandated masks inside early on i think that's why we didn't like why we were able to stop the curve a little bit. Well, and yeah. it's also why the protests didn't cause a, a, a spike yeah. because everybody was masked or most people mm-hmm. were masked in the videos that I saw. So, so, you know, we, we, yeah, New Yorkers don't, you know, like we're tough and we tell each other to fuck off all the time. And, 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 and there, you know, we argue, but like when disaster comes, we really know how to pull together and, and, you know, and I, you know, I love some of this stuff Cuomo did, and I hate some of this stuff Cuomo did, and I hate pretty much everything de Blasio did, but, but, um, but I, I, you know, I think that the citizens of New York really know how to pull together, you know? Well, we have to. And if we do we, that, people will follow, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We live too close to each other. <laughs> yeah. Not, right? right? It's like, it wouldn't work if we didn't work together, Right. Even when things, even when we're not in a crisis, like most people in New York know what side of the sidewalk to walk down so that people can walk down the other side of the sidewalk because it's too fucking crowded and the city won't work and people won't get where they're going unless we work together to do that, right? There are all of these like silent ways that we collaborate as New Yorkers every day just to get through the city, right? And I think, you know, a lot of other parts of the country that are more spread out where they don't have something like the subway as an equalizing force where it's like, you know, everybody has to ride the subway or everybody but the very rich have to ride the subway, right? Um, That don't live up against people who are different from them, right? In all kinds of different ways. Like there's a way that people can get stuck in their bubbles. And if New York City does one thing, it's bust us out of our bubbles. Mm-hmm. Right, and I prefer not living in a bubble. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to getting back. Uh, you know, I, I, I uh, to the city. We're ready now. Um, now that we've recovered from doing the line, carrying stories, as you know, is often more difficult than 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 people can imagine. I talk to a lot of reporters who like cover war zones and stuff like that, and and they the experience that I have after doing one of these is sort of like getting out of a war zone and coming back from something phenomenally traumatic. The stories aren't mine. They're somebody else's, but you're still carrying something for somebody. And it's a, it's a, it's a lot, you know, and your emotional life uh, is, is my dreams are haunted by images of these people and the work that they did. So I'm looking forward to getting back. I hope it's not going to be under federal occupation. (laughs) Right. If it, if it is, I'm looking forward to taking to the streets with everybody else, as is mm-hmm. my duty and, and my right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this year, like you were talking about coming into yourself as a writer. And by the way, the, the, um, 
just so you know that I'm never doing enough thing that never goes away. Mm-hmm. Like I got, <laughs> I got a good 11 years on you. And I just want to tell you that, that it does. I just want to, from the other side of, uh, I just had a big birthday. If you know uh, about. Yeah. Happy, <laughs> happy birthday, by the way. And, and by the way, I hope your stepdad's okay too. And I hope your mom's okay. My, my thoughts and prayers are with them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but like, like um, that, that never goes away. You know, that voice, that voice, you know, you, I, I ultimately like, I find it's helpful to make friends with the voice mm-hmm. and, and befriend it. But, um, well, it's like that Martha Graham quote, right? Yeah. No artist is satisfied. Yeah. Right. Like it's part of it. Yeah. There's only that queer divine dissatisfaction that keeps us moving forward, moving forward. Right. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, but you know, there's, there's, there's something on the other side of this for all of us, you know, uh, out of, out of, out of you know, um, out of great suffering can come uh, a kind of enlightenment that, that we can share here. And I'm sorry that people are suffering and it's sad that people are suffering and we have to make something better out of it. You know, that if not now, when, right? So, yep. Yeah. Yep. And the other thing that I also believe for us artists, um, if not us, then who? That's yeah. Right. Yeah. That's good. If not now, when, if not us. And so like, also, you know, anybody who like gets on me for being many things or doing many things or being a hyphenate or whatever, like where I come from, you're full of yourself if you're not doing one thing. (laughs) And, um, and, and so I was always put down and, and, and demeaned for, for what I do. It's something that I always came up against. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's silly or you're just an actor or you're just into yourself. You're just doing this for yourself. You're just, you're just, you just are an egotist and stuff like that. And, and um, I'm on the other side of that now, but for a long time, I believed those voices that were coming from outside. Yeah. Let, as I get older, I less and less listen to them. I think that's like, I'm super grateful for this time. Cause I feel like finally I'm listening to my inner muse or whatever. Like I'm, yeah. I'm listening to the voice that matters and finally being like, you know what? It's time to be yourself, like, and allow, and, and do the work. And then there's work. Right. <laughs> work to be right. But it's like, it's exciting. It's like, okay, a lot of work ahead. And the process is what, like, it's like, this is what we do and it's fun, you know? Um, we're, we're kind of in each other's conspiracy now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> And it's nice to, I mean, I'm, I, it's, it, this interview has been good chemistry. I want to continue our, uh, our new friendship and, and, uh, and Absolutely. Again, we're, we're available to you. So just let us know anything you need. We're around. Likewise. I'm going to put it um, out there right now. Um, we love having people over for dinner at our place. Hey, right um, on. So us too. You're not far from us. So nope. yeah. Is- so awesome. As soon as we can all go in each other's houses again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> a friend of mine a friend of mine is muslim and he says inshallah after covid yeah, <laughs> at the right. end of every conversation so you know inshallah after, after COVID. covid <laughs> i like it um well yeah i think that's a good place to put a pen in it um i could keep talking forever this is awesome but yeah let's continue the conversation absolutely i look forward to it um if you have any final parting words you want to leave with i'll i'll leave it to you 
Well, well, we got something coming up, we think, and um, it's going to kind of blow the doors off of things. Don't so when, I'm not going to, I'm not, <laughs> secret. it's a secret, <laughs> um, but as soon as we're able to, to talk about it, we'll, we'll, we'll come back. Yeah. We've got a new documentary play online rapid response thing we're cooking up. Awesome. So we'll well, I'm excited. That. Yeah. yeah. I'm cool. excited. The time. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Right um, on. And Lambique, Lambique in Amsterdam. Maybe your wife knows it. It's uh, if she doesn't, I'm sure one. Of, she was a theater publicist, publicist, words publicist over there. Um, so I'm sure some of somebody in her group will know. Right, right awesome. Take care and and have a good day and have a safe safe trip. Okay, stay safe. Thank you. You as well. And it's a pleasure. Take care. Us too. So that was my conversation with Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. Check out the line streaming at the Public Theater now extended to September 1st. Links are in the show notes as always. And I did in fact hop on a plane a couple days after that conversation. And I am in fact talking to you from Seattle. Well, technically Bainbridge Island where my mom lives. Um, But I've been back and forth in Seattle and I am going to be uh, helping out shooting something with uh, Casa Overall from the very first episode of the podcast. So that's going to be a fun full circle thing. Thank you for listening. Um, Thank you for helping me get to 100 episodes. I really enjoyed the conversation today. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, So if you did, please uh, like, subscribe, share you know, hip somebody else, let me know. And really, if you really enjoyed it and were inspired by what we were talking about, about finding clarity of purpose and why you do things and doing things for a purpose and showing up in service, do it, do your thing, whatever it is, reach out to me, reach out to somebody, uh, share it, share it with the world. I want to see what you're up to. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you. Take care. Peace. Oh, and one more thing. Wear a mask. Please wear a mask for other people. Thank you. Peace. (laughs) 